1: Hey everyone, it's Baz Dubois and this is Hammer at Home. I feel as a race and me personally as an individual, I just don't think we're doing enough to nurture the planet and provide the cultural stability, the food and the environment that humans need to flourish. We all like to think we're doing the right thing, using our keep cups and avoiding one use plastics and we are, but there's so much more we have to do as a culture. Until we start valuing humanity, sustainability, and the planet, we're just going to continue down the wrong track. This needs a complete rethink. And we are the only people that can guide that rethink. Okay, so lately we've been talking a lot about the damage we as humans are doing to the environment and what effect that is having on our lives. But do we ever stop and think about what climate change, that same climate change we're causing, is doing and how that's affecting animals. Well I've been thinking about it a lot recently so who better to chat with than our mate Robert Irwin. Robert, your father Steve Irwin said, I want the cleanest water, the freshest air and wildlife in abundance but most of all I want a future for our children. And I'm going to tell you, when we wrote that down, I got a lump in my throat, I got a lump in my throat right now. It resonates so much with me, a beautiful human being. Knowing what a great advocate for the whole planet your dad was, what are your thoughts on the current rate of climate change?
2: Yeah, well, thanks very much, Barry, for, for having me on and let me, you know, talk about my perspective on climate change. And, you know, for me, um, for my entire life, obviously wildlife, conservation, the environment, it's pretty intrinsically linked in, in what I get to do. And having the dad that I had and the mum that I have and this whole family around me living at a zoo, it's pretty hard not to love the environment and love wildlife. And I feel like Dad really was ahead of his time in so many ways. I think a lot of people saw him as, you know, this just absolutely crazy flurry of energy, passionate, wild person, which he was. He was an absolute hurricane. But at the same time, he was a science-minded person. He was actually a professor. He was a, a, an honorary professor from the University of Queensland. He was one of the leaders in crocodile science. And he also had so many theories and was always starting discussions about climate change before it was really popular and about sustainability as well in, in general. And I think that now it is quite sad to see that, that in my lifetime, this is going to be the time that our world is going to turn. You know, whether it's, it's for good or bad, it really hangs in the balance and it's up to us. It's up to us to change it, not in 50 years time, but now. I think that it is going to be a very hard slog if we, if we do want to make positive change. But I think the first thing that we need to do is start a wider conversation and be willing to all come together, accept our differences, and really just realize that we're all, all one earth and all one people, and we're all fighting this one battle together. And we see climate change affecting wildlife. You know, my thing is wildlife. And we see it in so many different ways. And so it'll be really good to talk about how it, it
1: affects our work, what we do, and, and really the, the global impact that it has. Well, that's exactly what we want to talk about. What you've just said is uh, exactly what I'm thinking. Your dad was a, an amazing character and fast moving and passionate. And when you're steering a really big ship, that can come across as unstable. Yeah, But like you've just said, what we do now is going to affect us in 50 years. So we need to start steering that ship in the right direction. But are we seeing more species dying out because of climate change? And, and if we are, what sort of numbers are we looking at?
2: Yeah, for our family and, and what we do, we have a, a non-profit organisation called Wildlife Warriors, which encompasses a whole myriad of conservation projects all over the world. And even through this COVID period, we've been able to keep that going, whether that's you know, tiger conservation in Sumatra, Uh, anti-poaching work in Africa, protecting livestock and cheetahs in South Africa as well. You know, there's so many different aspects to what we do. But we noticed here at Australia Zoo with our largest conservation project, which is our wildlife hospital, we really saw the effects from the bushfires. And of, of course, the bushfire crisis, it was unlike anything we've seen in history. And, you know, it was creating weather patterns that had never been seen before. We actually sent teams down, including myself and my mum. We went down to Kangaroo Island on the front line just after the fires went through to lend our assistance and expertise in, in helping to deal with the ridiculous amount of injured wildlife. To see it firsthand really hit home. I mean, I don't often get emotional, but it was, it was hard just getting through every day being down there. And I, I couldn't imagine you know, the people who had to live through it and i think when you see something like that you really you can't ignore it anymore we can't say no this this isn't climate change we can't keep sweeping this under the rug we need to look at the fact that around the world we're seeing fire seasons like we've never seen before and why is that it's because we have such altered weather patterns i mean even if they are deliberately lit burns you need the perfect storm you need the perfect conditions for a fire to really take hold and when you've got these crazy out-of-whack weather events that climate change is causing all over the world, that's when fire seasons are going to really worsen and become very, very severe. So we not only lended our our assistance on the front line, but also here at the Wildlife Hospital, we had a huge influx in species, not only burn victims themselves, but also animals that were displaced. We had about 700 flying foxes come in over the course of just a couple days. These beautiful baby bats that uh, were, were left behind because their mothers had to had to flee and so it was it was really really sad to see but i think that for all of us it almost strengthened our resolve in a way and and really made us even more passionate in in wanting to make a difference and really get this message out so for us the fires was was one of the biggest things we saw with climate change but interestingly another thing that we're doing a little bit more research on is how an increase in temperature. Is affecting individual species. I could rabbit on for a million years about this, but to sort of succinct it a little bit, we've noticed that with a lot of reptiles, especially animals like turtles, the temperature, the ambient temperature, will actually dictate whether you have a male or a female hatch out of the egg. Wow. So if you've got more warm temperatures, you're going to have a skewed gender overall. So you're going to have more of one gender coming out, and therefore, that's going to lead to really the demise of the species. So we're seeing with sea turtles, there's actually a consideration that as our planet warms, we're going to have a less gender diversity recruitment within young turtles, and that could really pose a very, very big threat to an already critically endangered species. We're also seeing with crocodiles, we have the largest and longest-running croc research program on Earth, and now our tracking technology with these wild crocs Is so good that we can actually record for a period of 10 years the body temperature of crocodiles. Wow. And we started this about 20 years ago. So we're getting at least 30 to maybe 40 years of data from a single animal. And to get that kind of data is amazing. So we can actually see how temperature differences are affecting the behavior in keystone species like crocs. So we're trying to stay ahead of the curve. Trying to do the best we can, not only dealing with animals that are directly affected by climate change like in the fires, but also learning how animals are adapting or maybe not
1: adapting well to this change in climate that we've seen. You know, it's really interesting what you said about how the temperature of the planet makes an effect on whether there's more male or female turtles. That's what sustainability is, really. It's, it's about keeping a balance. Yeah. See, if you're earning a lot of money, but your clientele is dying off, that's not, a, <laughs> that's not good economy. If you need uh, a certain thing for your culture, but there's too much of something else, that's not a balance. And If it's too hot and we're laying nothing but female or male turtles, that imbalance is going to see the extinction of that species. Exactly. And we're losing literally thousands of species, as I understand, not just with bushfires, but with these imbalances in the rapid change in climate change. Well, look at the Arctic, the two poles. That is frightening.
2: That makes me incredibly scared to look at. I mean, this is habitat that these animals have been relying on for so long. You know, your polar bears, your seals, all of these incredibly iconic animals. I mean, imagine losing polar bears. That's a reality that could happen in my lifetime. Imagine that. Polar bears, I mean, that's one of the first animals you, you learn about when you're a little kid. And so it's, it's happening all over the world, but, but yeah, also close to home as well. And I know that there's, there's a lot of research now going into the effect that climate change is having, and it is very, very frightening to see. Another thing as well, which is contributing to climate change, is, is habitat deforestation. You know, we're, we're seeing a huge rise in, in CO2 and we're not able to offset, offset that in any way because we're destroying all of our trees and in the process also destroying pristine habitat
1: for animals too. And so it all kind of goes hand in hand. Who do you think are the biggest players? Who's causing the most problem when it comes to climate change?
2: One of the really, really big contributors to climate changes is, is the mining industry. Uh, and I think that that is a really tough one to conquer, you know, because we, we do need mining, but it, we need to have a balance. Like anything, this whole wide discussion of sustainability, it's all about balance and we can't mine everything. A while ago, about, oh, probably about 13 years ago, 14 years ago now, we uh, were actually gifted by the Australian government a beautiful big parcel of of land in northern Queensland on the Cape York Peninsula. It was called the Steve Irwin Wildlife Reserve. And long story short, just days after we got it, we found out that there was a mine that was actually set to go in there. And so after that, a six-year battle ensued, really spearheaded by my mum. But eventually, we actually managed to stop this mine going in. And even though they weren't gonna mine the entire area, they wanted to set up this bauxite mine in a very sensitive spot. There's 35 different ecosystems in here, one of which was previously undescribed to science. And it's a beautiful spring-fed water source. And this is an ecosystem type no one had ever seen before in the entire world. And they were gonna wreck it, mining it. They would have been taking about 20 million liters a day from the Wenlock River to actually wash the bauxite rocks, and then that doesn't even go into the amount of habitat deforestation that strip mining incurs, this place would have never been the same. And so we knew we had to stop it. It was a ridiculous fight. It was very hard uh, meeting with so many different politicians and leaders. And I think that that sort of shows an example that it can be done and we can put pressure on these big businesses to make a difference. And also, not only put pressure on them, but also work together. It kind of goes to show that there, there is hope, even against the worst circumstances.
1: Very proud of that, mate. And uh, if there's a moral to that story, is that it's worth the battle. Thank you for taking on that battle. On behalf of the whole country, I thank you for that, for the whole planet, quite frankly. You're an advocate for animals, and animals have done pretty well for themselves for a long time. It's my view as humans, we're having a catastrophic effect on climate change and we have done over the last uh, 50 years at least or a couple of hundred years. Do animals in their natural habitat have any negative effect on climate change? I think when you look at animals in sustainable numbers, if
2: if you're leaving an area of habitat to its own devices, it's really going to balance itself out. That's the really nice thing is most of the time, to protect and restore the natural world it's not particularly difficult i mean if you leave everything if you just don't touch it if you don't actively destroy it it'll pretty much sort itself out but the fact that we're so rapidly destroying our habitat that's what's really going to have the big effect but honestly if you have an area an ecosystem an area of environment where everything's working well and animals are in healthy numbers and and humans aren't coming into to mess that up in any way, they're really not going to have any negative effect. They're not really going to contribute to climate change. You know, I think if we can mitigate our effect, that's what's really going to make the difference. And you know, something that very few people I actually hear talking about, and for whatever reason, is it's, it's a bit of a, a, a touchy subject, I suppose, is population. And it's something that everyone sort of seems to kind of stray from, you know, no one really hits the nail on the head with it. But our expanding human population is the cause of almost every problem facing the world, including climate change itself. You know, we've got so many people where we're reaching 8 billion people and a very finite amount of resources in our world. And I mean, the numbers don't add up. It's simply not sustainable. And if we keep growing at our
1: current rate, it's just not going to work. Can I argue that? Yeah, go for it. I agree with you in the first part. Our numbers and the change over the last 200 years have been catastrophic. And we've done so much damage. And uh, quite frankly, to go back to what you said earlier, you feel we could lose the polar bear in your lifetime. I hate to say it. If we lose the polar bear, where next. But I believe if commerce and culture and wildlife warriors like yourself work as a team rather than against each other, we could innovate to be able to house people. If we change cotton for hemp, if we ate kangaroo rather than cows, if we didn't mow down forests to have you know domesticated beef grown, I think we just need to get on the same page, that one doesn't work without the other. So I'm not arguing for the sake of it. I'm just saying, you're right. On the current trajectory, if that's the word, we're going to fail. We're going to fail. But if we start to innovate, if big corporations start to say, okay, this costs a little bit more, but it has to cost us all a little bit more because if someone's allowed to do it cheaper and have an effect on the environment, it's actually going to cost us all more in the end. If we keep going down this track, if we keep profiting by everything and not realizing some of this is required to maintain humanity, we're in all sorts of trouble. Mate, you're very lucky. You've travelled the world with all your research and the work you guys do with animals, and you've seen things that not a lot of us get to see. From what you've seen, how does climate change seem to be affecting Australia compared to other parts of the world? We talked about the the poles, but I'm I'm sort of thinking the Amazon and and places like that. How is the effect there? I have gotten to travel to to so many amazing places and, and really
2: see so much of the world it's definitely given me a a really, I I guess, a wider viewpoint on what's going on and and how we can also help as well. And I think that, yeah, it's a very multifaceted thing for sure. But with all the conservation projects that we help with, you know, I've gotten to go to Africa and and join up with the the Black Mamba Anti-Poaching Unit, who are this amazing group that goes out every day to help combat poaching and help rhinos. And it's, Incredibly inspiring to see, but it also really hits home just how important it is for us to make a difference now, you know. Uh, and I think that it's really good to see young people who are so passionate about it because wherever you go in the world, in so many different ways, whether it is with a huge bushfire season, whether it is in the Amazon, whether it's the poles whatever it is there's so many different ways that's affecting us but also so many different ways that we can help yeah. and i think that seeing young people on my travels at least i've seen so many people my own age who are incredibly passionate in making a difference and i really think that that's where change is is going to happen for sure it's making sure every demographic really comes on board totally and it's, it's going to take all of us
1: yeah It's really interesting you say that. I watch TV with the kids and and, uh, they're eight years old. And like you said, kids are passionate. They see it for what it is. And uh, we were watching, it was one of the wildlife programs and there there was people wailing. And the children said to me, Dad, why would they do that? Why, why would they kill those whales? And mum piped in and said, well, you know, they use the fat for things like lipstick and makeup and this and that and the other. And Bennett and Arabella looked at her it, for the first time with disgust. And Bennett said with his beautiful eyes, he said, Mum, do they realise they're living animals and it's just lipstick? Wow, yeah. He couldn't believe it. Isn't that the truth? It was so far from common sense, he couldn't believe it. And he's eight. And the thing is, we are all very passionate and we all want to do what we can do. And I believe to make this happen, corporations, politicians, they need to get on board wholly yeah and i mean look at the burning of fossil
2: fuels as well that's incredibly unsustainable isn't it time now that we just
1: start to look at renewables yeah this is this is the time to do it for big corporations the time to do it was to start thinking about it 200 years ago but i want to talk about australia zoo you guys are just smashing it oh well thanks no you are what sort of measures? I mean, I'm going to let you, because I get when I hear someone's doing a great thing for the environment, I get too excited. I can't talk. Talk us through some of the amazing things that you guys have done as a corporation. And, and remember, it's a corporation to balance out the emissions and be as environmentally sustainable as possible. Oh, well, thank you so much, And This is
2: something that we're incredibly proud of at the zoo. And it's been a really big team effort you know, Australia Zoo, you kind of have to call it a zoo so people know what it is, but it's a lot more than that. You know, it really is an incredible animal sanctuary and it it really stands as, as a hub for conservation. It's so much more than just a place where you can come in and see animals. We've built it to be not only a resort for wildlife, so they get the best life ever and teach our guests about them, but also more than that, Something that dad was so passionate about from day one was wildlife conservation and that on a global scale, really. And so, you know, we always felt you can't have a place like Australia Zoo, this incredible, beautiful, big business without it actually contributing and leading by example and being sustainable, not only trying to get the word out and help wildlife, but actually do it ourselves and and really pioneer and, and show the way. There's a few different ways that we've done that. So what we really did is we, we looked at what are we doing that is having the biggest footprint? What's having the biggest effect on the environment as a whole? What's contributing? What are we doing wrong? And, and how can we lead by example here? And what we saw were that there are a few things, a few different departments. At Australia Zoo, it's so much more than just feeding animals. You know, we've got photography, horticulture, construction, retail, marketing, so many different aspects. We noticed that food and beverage and retail were kind of those two really big pillars that were consuming so much. When you look at the the food and beverage industry, it's an incredibly wasteful thing. I mean, yeah, I mean everything's plastic. There's palm oil in absolutely everything you consume, and it is kind of sad when you start to look into it. And so our team, along with Mum, who's really the the driver of everything, we really wanted to. To make a difference. And our incredible head of food and beverage, Isaac, he's an incredible guy and and he wanted to really make a a big difference in, in this realm. And so what we did is we actually, over time, it took a very, very long time, but we were able to turn all of our food outlets within Australia Zoo to compostable, biodegradable, recyclable, ethically sourced packaging. We then looked at the palm oil problem, which was huge. It's one of those things that as you pull the thread and start to do
1: more investigating, you realise just how much palm oil is in absolutely everything. And the effect that these palm oil oh. trees have on a natural environment. It's massive.
2: No, it's, it really is massive. And so we really did our best and we just tried to you know, take it out of almost everything that we could and we really did a great job. In fact, one of our biggest outlets is actually our, our lolly shop. And the, the lolly industry, the sweets industry, there's so much palm oil in that. And so that was something we really wanted to target. That was going to be the main source. And so we looked at that and we were able to take out palm oil 100% from our lolly shop. There's none. Oh, that's great. You can come into Australia Zoo and buy whatever you want, knowing that we've got no palm oil in it, which is really, really important to us. The other thing that we looked at, of course, is our solar array, which is massive. So in 2018, we, we turned on our solar array. Uh, it consists of 1,900 solar panels. So it's now the largest solar array in any zoological facility in the country and among the largest in the world. And we were able to reduce about 700 tonnes of CO2 annually, which is really, really big. And, and in doing that, not only is that in itself helping, but that's also hopefully going to set an example for other zoological facilities. And and just quickly getting back to the to the food and beverage industry, another thing we were able to do is not only implement all of this within our business, but we actually looked and talked to our suppliers because a lot of the suppliers that we were using, they're, they're doing great work, but we really wanted to make sure that everything we were doing at Australia Zoo fit our ethos. And so we were actually able to encourage and work with our suppliers to have no wildlife products at all so making sure that those suppliers aren't supplying to us but then also supplying crock meat that someone can eat so we did that and also you know now now that supplier is encouraging all of the people that they work with and supply to other businesses to follow suit and do that as well so we're trying to lead by example with that yeah there's so many different ways
1: Composting is the most underrated thing in the world because what you're doing then when you compost and particularly in a corporate situation, but equally at home, you're turning something that is a waste product into an asset because if you compost it, it's adding value to your environment. Absolutely. If you allow the microorganisms and Arabic, I'm a real scientist, mate, <laughs> the Arabic bacteria to break things down, you've turned something that costs you money to take away. Now, you might pay your rates at home so you don't notice the cost, but it's costing our community money to take away rubbish and put it in a landfill. Whereas if you treat it at home, you can turn it into a resource and you can value it. Yeah. When you're a big business doing that, that adds up. And so that's what I want to ask, not as a wildlife warrior, but as a corporation owner, is finding more sustainable option onerous to a business or is it better to a business? I think that the thing is
2: everything comes with its challenges and and it's sort of this embedded culture in so many businesses and it's just sort of how businesses have run forever. But once you can kind of really look outside the box as we've done, I think we can stand as a really strong testament as a, a very successful business that it's worked for us yeah. and implementing solar, going to biodegradable, recyclable, you know, ethically sourced everything and all of our retail food and beverage, all of that, that has saved us so much in the long run. And so for anyone who is a business owner, I could not encourage highly enough. I mean, it, it really does help so much in the long run, not, not only for what you're giving back to the environment, but also as a business, I think people these days They want to be supporting places that are doing the right thing. And so if you are genuinely sticking by your guns, doing the right thing, you know that you're doing what's right and
1: you talk about that, people are going to want to support you, you know? And that's what I'm trying to encourage. Like I said, I I want people to understand if you have a self-belief system, if you believe in sustainability, source out businesses that believe in it and support them with your consumer dollars because that's what's going to turn the tide. That's it. That's what's going to change things. I want to talk about um, domestic animals, but before I do, I want to touch on something because I love it. You've written this somewhere and it it goes something like this. Uh, When someone asked you what was your favourite animal, you talked about the fact it was crocs because they can just survive anything. Talk me through that statement. Uh, What it says here, what I've got written here is... um, I love crocodiles. I'm trying to trying to impersonate you there. Yeah, I love crocodiles. You sound like me, it's great, yeah. Crikey, <laughs> yeah. throwing a crikey there, Baz. Throwing a crikey, come on, mate. Crikey, I love crocodiles. There you go. <laughs> not just because they're pretty. <laughs> you see things differently to me. You know I'm petrified of that sort of thing. <laughs> but, um... Especially snakes. I know your affinity with snakes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rob and I have had uh, some quite interesting um, meetups when it comes <laughs> to snakes. But anyway, so what you said is you love them not just because they're pretty, but because they're survivors. Why are they awesome? Oh, mate careful starting me on
2: a discussion about crocodiles this podcast is going to be three hours long (laughs) the thing is crocs are without a doubt crocs and snakes they're the most underrated underappreciated and and misunderstood animals in the world now i think it's all right if you don't want to go up and hug them and give them a kiss like i do you might want to keep your distance from a snake i respect that that's totally fine uh but i think that as you do, you appreciate them. You don't want to go cuddle them, but you still appreciate your crocs and snakes, which is what it's all about. Crocodiles are amazing. I mean, they've been on the planet for over 200 million years and they have existed in so many different forms through ice ages, through the great meteorite impact around 64 million years ago that killed out most life. And they've really weathered every single storm and that's because they are one of the most adaptable animals. They are like modern-day dinosaurs, but they're incredibly smart. They're incredibly good at uh, adapting to all kinds of different environmental changes, and there's a lot more to them than meets the eye. They're not just these you know big, ugly monsters going around trying to eat everyone. Not at all. They're actually very intelligent. They're very good mothers, highly protective. Males and females, when they pair together... They love each other. I've seen behavior from crocs that can't be anything but love. I mean, they they truly love each other. We've got a pair of crocs here named Graham and Bindi. (laughs) Bindi is actually who, who Bindi, my sister, is named after. She was named after the croc. Really? They've been together for years and they are inseparable. Same with Akko and Cassie, two of our other crocodiles. They love each other. They'll be together until the end. And when you watch this, you can't help but get them into your heart. That's what we want to do at the zoo, is show you the animals that aren't lovable and show you why they're important and why we need to protect them. And so crocs are a great example of that. Plus, being an ectotherm, they're poikilothermic, which means that they rely on ambient temperature solely and completely to dictate how they behave. And so if it's a warm day, they're solar-powered. They're going to be more active. If it's a cooler day. They're going to be trying to find the sun and really bunker down. And so we're seeing with climate change now, they're going to be a great indicator for us. And it's going to be interesting to see because we're facing something now, one of the great mass extinctions that's happening more rapidly than anyone before it. And I think if we, if we don't act, this could be the thing that after 200 million years, finally tips Crocs over the edge, which I mean, I, I'm not going to have.
1: Wow. No, and I'm with you. What it's going to take to make a change here is if every single human does their bit to reduce the carbon footprint. So when it comes to domestic animals, I'm guessing, I mean, there's about 20 something million of us in this country. Everybody's got at least one pet and every one of those, someone buys a bag of food off the shelf that's generally in a plastic, non-biodegradable bag. See, manufacturers, I believe, will be more responsible if we make them more responsible. And like what you've done as a corporation, if we as as pet owners, you know, if you've got a favorite pet brand and you love that pet brand and, and it's good... I encourage listeners, uh, the listener, I should say, <laughs> to write to, to that manufacturer and say, hey, I would prefer if this came in a recyclable package. Is there any way I can have a biodegradable package? Can I sh- return this package to you and you bre- send it to someone who will break it down and make a dog bowl out of it? These are the little things we need to change. And then we can house more pets and, then, and spend, spend our time and our money doing more efficient things
2: oh, the pet industry is is massive. It's like with anything, it it is up to, you know, when the big businesses and manufacturers start to make a change, that's when we're going to really really see that positive difference happening but you're right it is really up to us because if we just stand idly by and do what we've been doing for the years before nothing's going to change but yeah i mean for us when we go into a pet store we we have our places that we go to to make sure we get our degradable poo bags and all the things that you know come with with owning a dog or a cat or whatever you have and yeah, it is so important to hold them accountable and really show that as the consumers, as we all are, we want change and we want you to do the right thing. And they're going to have to listen. If, if their entire clientele, if their whole base, people that are buying their products are wanting a change, they kind of have no option
1: but, but to do the right thing. And, and it'll be very sustainable in the long run, for sure. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, COVID 2020 taught us that when things are thrown up and we have no choice, Australia Zoo Innovated, My Home Innovated, we have to innovate. We have to change like a crocodile. Yeah. We have to be able to adapt really quickly. That's it. Can I actually ask you a question? Yeah.
2: I have a question about your line of work and everything that you're doing. Are there moves towards sustainability in everything in, in, in your line of work? How sustainable is that?
1: There are, but it's, from my view, and I'm a cynic, there's no doubt about that. But for me, it's one step forward. You will come up with a a biodegradable something or we'll start to use passive energy. But then it'll be two steps back because an industry like property developing, for example, it can be allowed to put in hundreds of acres of homes so close together that a single tree can't be grown between the houses. If you take away the environment that we need to thrive, and that's what we do with a lot of our developments, we take away the environment not just animals need, but humans need to thrive. You know, we will develop smarter brains if you can sit under the shade of a tree and think about things. It's as simple as that.
2: Yeah, well, there's a study. They found more than 450 plants and animals have undergone local extinctions due to climate change. I mean, that is just frightening. And it's one of those things where you're right. If the people at the top who are making those big decisions had that kind of mindset, that's when you can really get stuff done. And, and that's why now we need to
1: encourage
2: our young people to have their voice and be passionate for sure.
1: Yeah. I believe we need to force corporations, as some big companies doing it, they're realising that they're going to lose their market if they don't change. And until we start putting a a value on life loss from climate change, that's when we're going to make those changes that your dad saw, that you see and I see. We're just average blokes as well, mate, but we can see it. Why can't the decision makers?
2: That's it. Yeah, I wish you could shine a spotlight and say, I mean, look in 50, 60 years, you know, people think it's just about the little woodland creatures that you're saving. No, it's about us. Mm. It's about so much more. It's about our economy. It's about our quality of life. It's about our children. It's, you know, there's, there's this saying, I'm, I'm going to probably butcher it, but it goes along something like the lines of the smartest person uh, is the one who plants a tree knowing they will never sit under the shade of that tree, but knowing that one day that their children, grandchildren are going to have the shade of that tree. And I think that's what our politicians and
1: decision-makers need to realise. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately not at this stage. Mate, you know, and, and I'm proud to say it to everybody listening, uh, I, I admire you. You're a great humanitarian. Thank you very much. Tell me, at the start of this, we talked about what Dad wanted from life. What's your dream? What do you want to see happen?
2: Oh, mate,
1: that is a very, <laughs> that is a very big question.
2: I think that for me... In, in my lifetime, I really want to see a, a, a world united. And I know that that's sort of something where, you know, everyone says they want world peace and all of that. But I think that what I really want to see is people who are working together. And I think that COVID has really showed us that if we all stand together, if we're, we realize that we're all in the same boat and we're all... One people that's when we're going to start to get stuff done and I, what I really want to see is is people decision makers listening to this younger generation that are coming up and really starting to n- not only you know talk about it but really start to implement what needs to be done and I, I think that for me, I feel this responsibility not only to continue my dad's legacy because you know he's he's not around anymore to Really spread his message and show that we all need to make a difference. Show that crocodiles are just as important as koalas, and show that climate change—it's happening now—and that we all need to come together and help. It's really up to all of us now to make sure that that kind of message lives on. And I think that we're in a really great position to make positive change. We're at this tipping point. 2020 almost felt like this huge disturbance in the world where we're all readjusting. And look at COVID. I mean, look at how when we all kind of went to ground and bunkered down, you know, all the vision of pollution levels decreasing and animals coming out where they were never seen before. Look at the effect that we have positively if we come together. And so I hope in my lifetime that I see people coming together, acknowledging the real problem, not sweeping it under the rug but deciding to stand up and make a difference and believe in their voice and what we can all do individually and as a group. It's a tough one. It's a hard one to nail down. It's a hard one to put into words. It's a hard problem to solve. It sounds so simple. I mean, it sounds really quite basic just to say, you know, we should all work together. But uh, I don't think people quite realise what's at stake here. I wish I could somehow show a little portal into the next 100 years and, and show where we're going to be at if we don't start to work together. And it's not about whose side you're on. It's really just about um, coming together and trying to, you know, have people in top positions who are going to acknowledge climate change and going
1: to want to make a difference. And all these things are really going to add up. This is what we have to do, people. We have to make the people who make the decisions realise that we care. So who is making a positive change? Well, IKEA is one company that is. And next time, I'm going straight to the top. I'm talking to the CEO and we're going to get answers. I'm Barry Dubois and this has been Hammer at Home. Thanks for listening. only from rustolium